Welcome to Westminster Insider. The podcast gets started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea to change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. It's not where you're from, it's where you're at, said the Stone Roses singer Ian Brown as he stood on the verge of greatness in 1988. And it's hard to think of an MP who embodies this more than my guest on the podcast this week, Angela Rayner. Pundits and political commentators love to speak glowingly about politicians with a quote-unquote backstory, as if difficult life experiences were somehow part of a clever long-term strategy to connect with ordinary voters. But for Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader, this was just real life. I didn't leave school with an education. So those issues that happened to me when I was younger led to me being pregnant at 16 um, without any qualifications, basically feeling like I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. You probably know the story by now, but she grew up in pretty much the most challenging environment you could imagine, on a poverty-stricken council estate in Stockport. From the age of 10, she was the one caring for her mother had serious mental health issues. Bullied at school and with no support network, she ran wild. And by the age of 16, Raina was a single mother herself, out of school, with no qualifications and battling to stay afloat. She was saved, she says, by the Sure Start Children's Centres set up by the Labour government in the late 1990s, and then by the chance to become a professional care worker and to return to education. Inspired by her experiences, she got into trade union politics and became a Labour MP in 2015, representing Ashton in East Manchester. Barely a year later, she was in the Shadow Cabinet and last year was elected Deputy Leader of the party. At 41, she is now a proud grandmother and one of the Labour Party's most dominant figures. It has been, by any measure, an extraordinary rise. I've been keen to get Angela on the podcast for ages, partly because she's hilarious, talks at about 100 miles an hour and never lets you get a word in edgeways, and partly because she's the only politician I've met who grew up in Stockport at the same time as me. Although, as she has never tired of telling me, I was very much from the middle-class end of town. And it's true. We went to state schools just a few miles away from one another, but our childhood experiences could hardly have been more different. Still... I had no idea that the week we'd finally picked for this interview would be such an eventful one. Rayner was sacked, moved, promoted, you decide, from her role as party chair and campaign coordinator last Saturday, following Labour's crushing defeat in the Hartlepool by-election. It's fair to say she wasn't best pleased at the way it was handled, and spent most of Sunday locked in what she has generously since described as robust talks with the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. But she emerged on Sunday night with a bewildering list of new job titles and looking more powerful within the party than ever before. She is now, deep breath, Deputy Leader, Shadow First Secretary of State, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. And if she can fit all that on a business card, then the Labour Party printers probably deserve a pay rise too. Her multiple new roles certainly caught Boris Johnson's eye in the House of Commons this week. In any pride of lions, Mr Speaker, it is the male 
who tends to occupy the position of titular, of nominal authority, while the most dangerous beast, the prize hunter of the pack, is in fact the lioness. A point that I am sure the right honourable gentleman bears in mind as he contemplates the member, his friend, the right honourable member for Ashton Underline, the deputy leader, the shadow's first secretary of state, the shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and shadow secretary of state for the future of work. Though the more titles he feeds her, Mr Speaker, the hungrier I fear she is likely to become. But what gives her this appetite for frontline politics? What's driven her from the rough end of Stockport to almost the very top of the Labour Party machine? And what does she make of the party's current malaise, seemingly further than ever from power, and with its northern heartlands, Rayner's own heartlands in fact, drifting further away still? We discussed her crazy new job title. Because what I say, Lancashire, so I had to keep saying caster, like caster sugar, her relationship with Keir Starmer. You get annoyed with your boss sometimes. Her view on Boris Johnson. Have you seen the way he rocks up at the dispatch box sometimes? He like literally looks like he's literally fallen out of bed. And what it's like to be a struggling single mum, aged just 16. That is real fear when it's in your stomach and it literally makes you feel sick because you don't know how you're going to get to the end of the week. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet Angela Rayner and to hear what really makes Labour's deputy leader tick. Angela Rayner, welcome to the podcast. You have had, I think it's fair to say, a hell of a week. How are you doing? It's been a bit of a sucker punch variant week. I think our results pretty much match what I think has happened, you know, in terms of the headlines and everything, you know. Um, But I'm, I'm doing all right. The party's doing okay. People will probably look from the outside, how how do you come to that conclusion? And I'd say that we've made progress. If you look at our results, where we put our case forward, where we've been in power, and even in the areas that we'd call the blue wall, the Tory areas, we we made inroads. So we didn't do too bad overall. Um, I'm feeling optimistic, but not unalive to the challenges that we face as a, as a party in terms of getting back into the place where we can win back our our traditional seats where we've been losing votes for some time. You must think it's crazy, though, that in a week when we've had Scottish nationalists winning in Hollywood, we've had the Queen's speech, we've had the end of social distancing, we've had David Cameron's ridiculous text messages to his mates in government, but the internal wranglings of the Labour Party still managed to get on the front page of the papers. Yeah, I mean, that always frustrates me because, you know, people are worried about their jobs, not mine, quite frankly. Nobody from my constituency, and I think that they all love me to bits, but none of them really worry about what position I have in the Labour Party. What they want to know is that the Labour Party is fighting for them. And that's kind of what I've always done. And it's what I believe that we should all be pulling together to do. What is it about the Labour Party? It feels like you've all been at one another's throats pretty much the whole time you've been an MP since 2015. I get how that can can look sometimes, especially um, when you're close to Westminster bubble. But, you know, actually the Labour Party, if you look at like locally and in, in our mayoral results, you know, out of the 13 mayors, we've got 11 and we gained two from Tory areas as well. So like in Wales, for example, we've made great progress there and Andy Burnham smashed it in Greater Manchester. And, you know, we, we won the West of England mayor. So we, where we're actually talking to the voters, we're doing really well. And loads of our party is doing that and loads of our, our membership are. But there is a small group that 
get the headlines that you know are just in a power struggle and that that's nonsense because we're not empowering Westminster and we won't be empowering Westminster for a very long time until we start realising that we look like bald men fighting over combs. Sir Keir Starmer is set to announce a reshuffle of his front bench team after a disappointing performance in local elections in England. But he's facing criticism for sacking Angela Rayner as campaign coordinator. I, I know you said you don't want to get into the uh, robust discussions you were having with the leader over the weekend. Uh, but just tell us, what does it look like? Is it like these things? Are they like tea and biscuits in his office? Or are you shouting at one another down a Zoom call? What, what, how does it actually work? The thing is, is like me and Kira, like yin and yang, have said this before. I just like say it how it is. So I go in there like the trade unionist I am. And I'm like, right, I'm not happy about this and what's going on here. And Keir's an incredibly professional guy. So he's like, oh, okay, um, this is what I think. And then, so it's just like the two worlds collide. But I will say this about Keir. He is a total professional and he does want to do the right thing. I wouldn't be still with him, as they say, if I didn't think he could do that. Do you know what I mean? The trust and the bond hasn't been broken. You know, he might cheese me off every now and again, but that's how partnerships are like that, aren't they? You know, you get annoyed with your boss sometimes. It's just, that's how things are. But, you know, Keir's heart's in the right place. And, and what Keir said to me is that we need you out more on the front foot. We need people to see you more. That was Keir's assessment. And, you know, I don't disagree with him on that. And neither does our membership, actually. I think we're all united on that. You know, me and Keir have a really good relationship. You know, we are different people. I'm not going to hide from that. Everyone can see it. We are different people. But that's how it works because we're not in competition with each other because we know we bring different things to our leadership, our joint leadership. So you've emerged from it all with uh, several new jobs, which is very impressive. Um, and I've been quickly... trying to learn them. It's like that shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Because what I say, Lancashire. So I had to keep saying caster, like caster sugar. Lancaster sugar. So that's how I could think of it in my head because I thought some media person's going to ask me and I'm going to like mispronounce it and then they're going to say, look, she's really thick. She can't even say her own title. So I've, I've learned it now. So I, I know it. Do you actually know what it means? Because I had to Google it this morning. I mean, it's just one of those titles to give people so you can go across departmental, apparently. So that's how I took it. It's like, just crack on, kid, and, <laughs> you know, and, and challenge the government and put forward that comprehensive plan. Because that's, that's why I wanted to be the Shadow Secretary of State for the future of work. Because I think work is crucial. I want good paid jobs, you know, I want people to feel secure and that they can buy a home and take the family on a holiday, not that they have to have top-ups through benefits or, you know, they have to go to food banks and, and that shouldn't be the way work pays, you know, that's not what I think. And then building on that, you know, okay, so how do you compete in a global market and have good, well-paid jobs that are secure? The only way you do that is having an ambition to tackle the global challenges we face like climate change and I think we can, but we've been under-ambitious on that and you know Biden's pushing in the US now um you know we've got the cop um meeting coming up and I think we've really got to push that agenda forward I'm speaking to Angela less than a week after the Hartlepool by-election which was by any measure a disastrous night for labor the party lost a heartland seat it had held since 1964 and to a conservative party which has been in power for 11 years Gillian Wendy Mortimer, commonly known as Jill Mortimer, Conservative Party candidate, 15,529. Immensely proud to be the first Conservative MP in Hartlepool for 57 years. Labour's candidate, 
local GP and anti-Brexit campaigner Paul Williams won just 8,500 votes, the party's lowest tally in Hartlepool in almost 100 years. What's your analysis of why the party lost so heavily in, La- in Hartlepool last week? You know, the Brexit vote went straight directly to the Conservatives. So you, you, you look at it, look at the last vote, and we haven't still been able to win them back. And that vote that was with the Brexit party before shifted pretty much en masse to the Conservatives. In retrospect, then, was it a mistake to pick a candidate who'd been such a prominent campaigner against Brexit and, you know, shouting about second referendums and people vote and all the rest of it? If I'm honest, Jack, I think we lost it before we even picked a candidate. We might have got a couple of hundred more votes or not. I don't know. But, you know, Paul had been on the ground and I stand by everything I said. He'd been on the ground delivering the vaccine. You know, he'd been campaigning against the cuts that the Conservative, the services had pushed out of Hartlepool, like women's services and things like that. He'd really pushed on those issues. So I don't really think it was that. I think it's a emotional shift away from Labour that takes time to get back. And, you know, I haven't given up on that because I think the people of Hartlepool are tremendously resilient and great people that are emotionally connected to our history as a movement. But we've got to earn their respect back. We can't just ask them and say, OK, we've got a different leader. Now vote for us. It takes a lot longer to earn that respect back once we'd lost it from those voters. It must be disappointing, though, that so little progress seems to have been made since the election. I mean, it's been nearly 18 months now, and at the best, you're treading water. In fact, probably lost vote share in Hartlepool compared to, to 2019, even allowing for the Brexit thing. Why, why, hasn't, why hasn't any steps forward seemed to have been taken? I think there were some challenges. You know, if you look at incumbent governments did do a lot better because they've been dealing with the pandemic. And I think that there's an acknowledgement there. The vaccine boost, which, you know, and people really want... a do well and we were an opposition that was trying to be constructive and I believe Keir was right to do that by the way our country had a real threat it was almost like it was at war with a virus you know we we had to deal with the matter at hand and try and as much as we possibly can be constructive in telling the government what we think they could do so it kind of sucked the air out of everything else and now we're in a position where we've got to think about structurally not just for the next couple of years but for the next couple of decades because we're going to be paying back the economic consequences and the challenges in terms of our health and social care for a significant period of time to come and I think along with that is people's thoughts about what we hold dear and what we value have changed because of what they've seen through the pandemic so there's a real opportunity for us to sort of say well well, what's important to us why do we go to work you know, why do we do what we do and why do we have those aspirations and then really pull that together and have an ambition for our country and, and its place in the world. And I think that's to do with jobs. It's to do with good public services that are run for the public and not for privately outsourced companies that are creaming off loads of profits. And, you know, Andy Burnham with his, you know, franchising of the buses, Tracy in Yorkshire, you can see really that it can make a powerful difference when we're talking about the things that matter to people. The thing is, though, Angela, we've heard this Over many years from the Labour Party, you know, all through the 2010s, Labour Party's been talking about insecurity of work, the cost of living, helping struggling families. They've always made that case all through the past decade. And yet people aren't voting for you in the numbers that you need to win general elections. What more do you need to do to actually reconnect with the people who used to vote Labour in such big numbers? Well, I talked about the paternalistic style in which we communicate with the voters. So, you know, at times we kind of tell them this is what I think you need instead of actually listening to them and saying, how can I empower you in your life? And that's that's the 
the tone that we need to take, not a paternalistic, I'm going to look after you, but actually uh, I'm going to respect and support you to live an independent, good life. But part of that is about a state being an enabler for that. And the language that is sometimes focused on is that we just want a big state and we just want to take over everything and go backwards almost to a different era. And that's not that's not the 21st century and that's not the way in which the workers of this country sort of work at the moment. We don't have those big employers and industries anymore, but we do have challenges. You know, our steel industry is a security issue for us as well. And we've got to make that case about actually there's some industries that are so crucial to our you know, our place in the world, that we should have a stake in it. Why do you think so many voters in the north of England who previously wouldn't touch the Tories with a barge pole, frankly, are prepared to vote specifically for Boris Johnson? Like, What do you think it is about him, you know, posh, southern, eaten, educated guy, that is appealing to people who never would have voted Tory before? I think he comes across as authentic, even though, you know, what he is is what he is. <laughs> And, you know, and I think a lot of people, they like the authenticity. For a long time, people have felt that politicians are just saying what they think they want to hear or they try to triangulate is the word that they use, isn't it? Triangulation. I call it magnolia politics. You know, let's not offend anyone and have no opinion on anything sort of thing. And as you are are all aware, that's kind of not me. (laughs) Is it something the Labour Party's been guilty of, do you think, though? I I think so. I think all parties were a bit of that and Boris just sort of like cut through that there's certain politicians you know Nigel Farage did you know he cut through that he came across as authentically what he is and he had a very clear message and he was ruthless in it and uh, I was saying you know before in in one of my interviews that you know Labour under promise and over deliver that's our mentality you know we don't want to say too much and be over ambitious and then yet the Conservatives, they overpromise and underdeliver because they'll say everything and if they reach anywhere near it, then that's considered a great success for them. They're much better at sort of staging what they do and we haven't been as successful as that. Do you think that's why Andy Burnham's proved so popular in the North West because he's able to come across as authentic to people? Though. Yeah, he is authentic. He just says what he thinks, you know. And it's about taking that personal risk. Because when you do do that, then there's a lot of people that will agree with you, but there's a lot of people that won't, and you'll stir up emotions in people. But politics is emotional. It should be emotional. But when I say that, you know, it shouldn't be emotional to the point where people send me death threats because they get that, and it's like, look, mate, that's a bit that's a bit too emotional. You you can have an opinion that says I don't like what you stand for, and that's cool. And, you know, I speak to people across the political spectrum. You know, I, I, I have cordial relationships with, with lots of people and I'm, I'm very respectful. But, you know, when you get into abuse, and that seems, seems to happen a lot now, and especially um, the way in which social media is used to do pylons and, and everything else, actually, it really sort of provokes this magnolia-type politics. It enables that sort of suppression of people's engagement because it's he who shouts loudest rather than everyone being able to be part of the debate. And that's a real problem. So is your message to the party a bit more primary colours and a bit less yeah. of a magnolia? My message to my message is that to not just our party, but to, you know, and, and that's the other thing, you know, we're a broad church in the Labour Party. It's not always like me and Keir have not fell out. <laughs> like the, the media went mad and it all went a bit like crazy. But actually, reshuffles are difficult and... Me and Kira have had loads of robust conversations since we've been leader and deputy leader, but I've never fallen out with him. So there you have it. 
they've definitely never fallen out. Still, I think we'd all have enjoyed being a fly on the wall in Keir Starmer's office when the teacups were flying last Sunday afternoon. Coming up in part two of the interview, I'll be asking Angela Rayner if she could have been one of the Tories' new breed of Northern voters, were she growing up in Stockport today. We'll also discuss swearing at Tory MPs, boozing with her old mates back home, and how her difficult childhood remains the driving force behind her success. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. Because it's Klarna, you might expect me to be sitting on a fluffy pink cloud. That's fun, but today's about facts. Over 14 million people and 13,000 retailers use Klarna in the UK. Klarna doesn't charge customers interest or fees when they buy now, pay later. Last year, buy now, pay later saved customers an estimated £76 million in credit card charges. OK, now where's that pink cloud? Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. Given the way like voting's changed over the last few years in the north of England, can you be confident that Angela Rayner, aged 18 now, would still be a Labour supporter. Is it possible that you'd have been, you know, people of your age or people like you at that age would be sort of won over by Boris and Brexit and those arguments? I think they could be run over by that because they like spicy personalities. The Angie Rayner, 18, would have been like someone a bit spicy and willing to be, you know, throw a grenade in. Not like a real one, you know. You know, I'm not joking. I'm not actually advocating like real violence. But do you know what I mean? Someone who's like, like that's why we like soaps, isn't it? You know, we like a bit of like a bit of argy bargy or someone who's going to like upset what the norm is. And that's why I think when I took Nigel Farage on on Question Time at the last general election, people loved it because they're like, go on, stick it to him. Refugees, I, you know no, you're that. right. You're right. Uh, thank you. They were not refugees. Thank you. You were, the you Labour Party, were trying to dog whistle racism and you're a disgrace. You're a disgrace. You're a disgrace. You're a And they kind of like that about my personality because I'm, I'm kind of a bit gun-ho and like that sort of thing. And I think the Angie Rayners that I know would love that sort of stuff. But it's doing it in a way that's um, also a bit, like I say, respectful. You know, I, I, I have political differences with people but there's a way of doing that do you know what I mean and I have difficulties with the way Boris Johnson is behaving as a prime minister because I think it's wrong and and it frustrates me that he's given a lot more latitude than for example I would be given because of who he is and you know the way in which he can portray that as oh well it was it wasn't a big issue and it's like it's a really big issue if you break the rules mate because you're a prime minister who is supposed to uphold the rule of law and you expect ordinary citizens to do that. And when you say you wouldn't get away with it, do you mean, is that a class thing, do you think? Or is it a, a female-male thing? I think it's a bit of both, if I'm honest. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, look at the last couple of days. You know, Boris Johnson's hair is an absolute mess, but everyone's talking about my clothes. Now, just to add a bit of context here, Angela was accused of being dressed inappropriately after going campaigning in Hartlepool in a black hooded jacket, leopard print trousers and heavy-duty black boots. Like, have you seen the way he rocks up at the dispatch box sometimes? He, like, literally looks like he's literally fallen out of bed. And (laughs) yet nobody says, like, oh, this is disgusting, look at our Prime Minister looking like he hasn't even got a comb. But imagine, like, I'd literally, like, turn up in a barber jacket right which i thought like, it cost me a lot of money that that jacket i've had it seven years i'm getting my money's worth out of it <laughs> right but that is a coat that you can go into minus 20 in and i'm in hartlepool and it's absolutely freezing right so i've got i've got a barber coat on what what's the problem 
Like I'm not in the dis I'm not at the dispatch box, do you know what I mean? And I'm not gonna totter around Hartlepool in a pair of little heels and, you know, a Hobbs suit. It's just not it's not appropriate for that. So the thing is as well, if I'm talking to the electorate, the the people like me, I'm not trying to have a power imbalance with them. Sometimes you dress to get the authority in the room. And I do that, you know, if I'm in Parliament, I dress to get the authority in the room. But if I'm on the streets talking to people like me, I don't want them to think, oh, she's she's higher than me. I want them to think she's like me. She is me, you know, because I am. I don't want to make them feel intimidated by me. I want them to see, oh, bloody hell, there's a politician that's just like me. Have you changed, do you think, by becoming a politician do you find yourself now having to give sort of politicians answers in a way that you know when you first arrived in parliament I remember having a cup of tea with you in 2015 when you just arrived that you never the things coming out of your mouth that you never would have said back then when you just didn't care as much well listen I had to apologize for calling the conservative member of parliament um, a four-letter word hindsight heavy behavior but uh, excuse me did the honorable lady just call me scum order 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 Order! From the front bench, we will not have remarks like that. Not under any circumstances, no matter how heartfelt it might be. Not at all. Which I didn't think was unparliamentary. Like, literally, you're taking kids' dinners off them. That's pretty pretty scummy behaviour, as far as I was concerned. So I didn't do it because I wanted to cause a, a stink or anything, and... I like literally said, if you were in my local boozer, you'd have been called something else. You know, if I cried every time someone said something like that, God, I'd never get up. So I genuinely didn't think it was like an unparliamentary word. So in that respect, yeah, I've had to change that because like they just don't get like that's how we are. Like if we're having a debate in, with my mates, like some people that comment on stuff like that, I'm thinking you'd like literally think we're about to pot each other which we're clearly not because we love each other but it's just that's how that's how we speak that's how we are like we get like passionate and we might even say a few swear words occasionally but I, I, I've never swore in part I never would you know I'm respectful of the institution but they have weird like little ways of doing things like when I got to parliament everyone if you do something like your job everyone writes you a little handwritten note saying oh what a wonderful speech you did you know really really congratulate you on that and I'm thinking I just did my job like in any other walk of life like do you lot do it Jack do your <laughs> colleagues after you've done this interview will will contact you and do your handwritten note saying Jack that interview was absolutely amazing you know what what a standout interview that was and it's it's a rhythm of politics to network that happens that I was like this is a bit it's a bit weird. Like, like NHS workers don't get that, do they? You know, oh, what a great shift you did there, you know. It's kind of just write to you and tell you what, what a fantastic shift you did. It's just a bit weird. And, and how do you stay grounded? How do you stop it all going to your head and then, you know, being on the telly all the time and the rest of it? I absorb myself in all things mank. <laughs> I go back. I go back to my mates and, you know... Um, are they I mean, still not... the same mates that you've had since you were Yeah, mates age? that are not really political people. And at first, you know, they found that really difficult because, like, on my social media, and that the more abuse I get saying that I'm this, that, the other, my mates are like, you don't know her! Because they're all, like, saying, oh, she's she's this, that, she thinks she's better than us. And they're like, you don't know her! You know, and, and I'm like, just don't get into it, you know. It's not personal, even though they think it's a real personal attack on me. It's people venting their anger at the system. 
I mean, we've had the pandemic, so I've not been out for ages. And I suspect since I became deputy leader, my profile's gone up a bit more. Because what we used to do is me and my mates would go out and have a drink. And if anyone recognised me, we'd move to the next pub. And, you know, like, it was dead Dangerous. awkward because people would say, what do you do for a living? And I'd either say I was a home carer or that I was, like, involved in public service and leave it at that and hope that they didn't ask any more than that. So I don't know how tricky that'll be next time I try and go out with my mates and just be like everybody else. Because sometimes you just want to be like everybody else in the room. When you look back at, at, at growing up in Stockport, and we grew up in Stockport at the same time, although, as you've always told me, I grew up in the posh end of you Stockport, did. apparently. It's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> A bit, a bit more posh. But when you look back at it, do you are there things that you take out of that? And you've talked a lot about your past, as like as a positive experience. You're like, well, these are the things that bolder me. Or are there things where you just feel quite resentful when you look at some of the advantages that you know people, lots of people in Westminster have had? No, it doubles down my efforts, and it and it actually helped me, you know, because when I left school, I had no qualification, but I'd been a carer for my mum, you know, and other things, and I was looking for affection in in ways that. I shouldn't have been looking for it. I was involved in the nightclub scenes at the age of 14 and things like that. I just, I was grown up because I was quite feral and quite resilient because I didn't have that nurture at home and I was looking after my mum, so I was looking for an escape. So education wasn't a big thing for me and I went to school and this school readiness, I wasn't school ready and I had a lisp. I didn't know my mum said, oh, you had the first load of abuse I got of speak properly my mum went oh yeah you needed speech therapy when you were young I was like did I she's like yeah you did I thought she's my mum's trolling me (laughs) (laughs) but but like I I wasn't school ready and you know and therefore that you know I, I did once I got to like my teenage years like school was not a place for me to get educated it was you know it was a very hostile environment it was a bruising environment I I got bullied at school so for me it wasn't fun whereas people who were older than me because I looked older as well they treated me a bit better and therefore I got involved in you know like I say I was going clubbing and things like that from a really young age I didn't leave school with an education I didn't get my GTS I was smart cookie but I didn't see that as a route for me I didn't ever see that as a possibility those Issues that happened to me when I was younger led to me being pregnant at 16 um, without any qualifications, basically feeling like I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. And over the years, I've realised that structurally there were things that were always going to impact on me that made it a disadvantage for me, like my mum not being able to read and write and my mum's bipolar and me living in poverty and and all the problems that we faced as a family. But then equally, I had a moment where I realised that I was just telling my son off all the time and I wasn't actually loving him and I wasn't enjoying him because my parents never enjoyed me. We were a byproduct of their relationship and we were, what was it my dad used to say, seen but not heard. And that's that's kind of the mentality, you know, well, go and play over there. And I didn't have the joy of playing with my kids and I hadn't read books when I was young. So books weren't a thing of enjoyment for me. There were school told you you had to read and I didn't like that. It was boring. So I had to learn that you can read to your children and it's a really important thing, but you can enjoy it. And loving your children is about giving them, they don't just know they loved giving them a cuddle. I had to learn how to give my children a cuddle. So sure start basically saved my relationship with my son and changed everything. Because my son, the best moment for me was seeing my son grab his daughter and cuddle her without any restriction whatsoever. He just like beams, he just gives her a big cuddle and it's like, I wish I could have done that. I had to learn that. And even now, 
to get that level of affection, it's difficult because I'm not used to it. So when I get like abuse and shouting and people saying, Ugh, I'm used to that. That's kind of the environment I grew up in. You're not good enough. Shut up. Go away. Blah, blah, blah. So sure start, first of all, made me understand about love and what love is and how to show affection to your children, how to give them the best start in life. And then being able to go back into education and free education, night school, meant that I suddenly learned that education is not something that's done to you. And I learned the passion for it and that you can enjoy it. Education could be an eye-opener. It could be what you want and how can it open up like your passions about what, what you enjoy. So I learned all of that as well. So in other words, the levers that we had, that I had, that gave me the opportunities that I am today were because of the Labour government. And that I've seen the Conservatives take all of those levers away and cut them back. And that really, really spurs me on with passion to say, this is madness. The Conservatives say that they, they say I should be a Conservative because they want to help people like me. And they say, well, look, it proves that if you work hard, you can get on. It's these lazy scroungers that don't want to work. And it's like, no, mate, I would have died for my son. I wanted to help. I wanted to do it. But I was a care worker in the private agency, which literally wouldn't pay me enough to look after my son in the way I wanted to. And it's even worse now because they have to go to food banks. I visited a food bank in Jim McMahon's old and by-election and I had to go in the toilets and I started crying because I saw the baby nappies and the baby food and I thought, at my lowest point at a 16-year-old as a mum, I didn't have to visit a food bank. I had to get income support, yes, but I went to the shop and bought my own nappies and it meant meant that I felt like I had at least some responsibility and some self-respect and I could build from that and there was steps to build from that the steps to get people out of poverty are no longer there in fact if anything they've made it harder for people and they've pushed people into poverty and it's it's not their fault you know everyone thinks oh you're in poverty it must be their fault the pandemic has shown that a lot of us are just one paycheck away from that do you feel resentful of the, some of the people working in Westminster who've had a completely different upbringing to you? Do you ever get angry and just think, God, all the stuff I had to put up with and you've had it effectively all on a plate for you? No, I think I'm better for it. I think I'm more compassionate and more rounded and more resilient. That's what I mean when these people are crying over a bad headline or something. I'm like, get a grip. I, I can literally pay my gas bill. Do you know how hard it is when you literally, your kid comes home and they say they need shoes? And you literally feel like your whole world has melted because you don't know, you panic. How am I going to buy shoes? I've got no money for the rest of the week. I just about budgeted to get the meals ready for my kids. And now you need shoes or the fridge packs up. And you're absolutely bricking it because you're like, what am I going to do? I can't borrow anymore. I've asked somebody else to help me with that. I already owe money there. That is real fear when it's in your stomach and it literally makes you feel sick because you don't know how you're going to get to the end of the week. Not a bad headline. Get over yourselves. This is not what it's about. This is about people who have got real life problems and, you know, real issues that we should be tackling. And is this is what drives you finally to want a Labour government to be in power, presumably, is, yeah. is this life experience. Exactly, yeah. And it's not about me. And that's the thing that people fail to recognise sometimes, I think. Because I've been what, what some would consider to be successful since I've been a politician, they think my ambitions are about me becoming leader or you know, getting positions. I don't care about what position I'm in. I want to make a difference. Call me whatever you like. 
I want to be part of a collective that gets a Labour government because I know what Labour does in power. I've seen it. I've seen what the Conservatives have done and I've seen what Labour does when we're in power. That's it for me. That's my church. That's my family. That's everything to me. That's my community. They were the family that I needed, that respected me, that helped me. And we've got to, we've got to understand that and understand that drive and passion and take it forward. And I think we've got it. And I think we can take that forward and I think we can win. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be in there. You know, I've spent the last six years feeling conflicted because I've not been around for my kids as much as I'd want to be because the job is, you know, a very challenging job. And over the lockdown, it was the first time I'd gone back to my house for any significant period. And I sat there, Jack, and my kids were just getting on with things and didn't really need me. And it felt I felt really sad. Now, some could say that my kids are resilient and are great, and, and they are, they're, I'm dead proud of them, but a little bit of me thought, I've given up that time with my babies and it's got to be worth something. I'm giving up that time with my babies because I want everybody's babies to have the same opportunity. And I'm a tiger mum for the Labour Party and I'm going to make sure that that happens because it's got to be worth something. So that's Angela Rayner, the Labour Party's tiger mum who likes her battles fought in primary colours, not with the magnolia tinge she fears turns voters off. The council estate kid who understands the draw of Boris Johnson to millions of northern voters and wishes Labour had the same authentic appeal. The social justice campaigner, driven by her own dark experiences to improve the lives of others, if she could only get the chance to do so. If the Labour Party can't find a path to power with its current leader, Keir Starmer, There are plenty of people who think she's well-placed to take on the challenge herself. And having emerged stronger than ever from last weekend's power struggle, it would be a brave punter indeed who rules her out. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, perhaps you'd like to send me a handwritten note on special House of Commons notepaper telling me what a wonderful job I'm doing. Alternatively, you could just subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment there too. My producer this week is Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.